Hello. I just want you to know that it's so incredibly mean to have me stand up here and you guys are just hanging out in hammocks. So I want you to feel all the guilt that you need to feel that I'm just standing up here and you guys are totally lounging. So thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Alicia Wood. This is my one, two, three and a half um, uh, time at Creation Fest. I did uh, the online one in 2020. So if any of you watched the online Creation Festival then, I did a short video for that. Um, and how many of you have heard me speak before? Okay, how many was like last night was the first time you ever heard me? Okay, so we got some first timers, good. So let me just give you a little bit about me, uh, just so you kind of understand a bit about me. Um, I hail from the great state of New York, from Rochester, New York. Do you have any Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse people here? Anybody from upstate New York? A few! Yay! Thank you very much. The home of Kodak, although these young kids have no idea what Kodak is. So, um, it's like I, I can't even say that anymore. Now I can tell people it's the home of Wegmans. Some people know Wegmans. That is another one of our contributions to the world. You're welcome. Um, and uh, loved it up there. I lived in Philly for five and a half years. I've lived in Boston. Oh, where's the Philly crew? All right. There's a whole mess of them. And I lived in Boston for four years, uh, which was great. No one from Boston. Okay. Um, that was a great, great city. If you love sports and seafood, you're in the right place when you're in Boston. And uh, that was really fun. And then now I'm in hot as junk Atlanta. Um, where it's probably 96 degrees and like crazy humid all the time. So this feels amazing. I love being back in the north. It's so wonderful for me. Uh, but I've been in Atlanta now almost five years, which is unbelievable to me. And I uh, am, as explained last night, but for those of you maybe who didn't hear last night, I am what's called a Christian apologist. No, I don't have a career in apologizing. That would just be weird. Um, but basically what an apologist does is we use reason, logic, um, and like sound argumentation to advocate for why something is true. So you don't have to be a Christian to do this. You could be a Muslim and do this. You could be a atheist and do this. Like it doesn't matter. You can be of any belief. I'm, I'm a Christian apologist, meaning I argue uh, for Christianity. And so you're not going to get, here's the Bible, believe it from me. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and undergird it with something. And so I work with an organization called Lighten. You may have seen the really cool splash that we have as our logo, or maybe you'll see our table kind of in the merchandise area. We've got podcasts and um, videos and all kind of stuff for articles for you to uh, reach or uh, look at further if you want. So it's Lighten, L-I-G-H-T-N, like a light bulb, lightengroup.org. So I totally welcome you guys to check some of our stuff out and it might be helpful. We talk about all kinds of things um, on the podcast and also in terms of written articles. So what I want to do is talk with you today about this topic of sexuality and gender. Um, I don't know if any of you ever thought about this before, um, but I'm sure you have because it's one of the big hot button topics in our culture right now. And I want to just see if we can maybe better understand this. Obviously, I'm going to come from a Christian perspective. And as you're going to hear from me over the course of what I'm going to say, I'm actually really glad I'm coming from a Christian perspective on this because we're going to look at some other different views on these kind of topics. So with that said, I also want to say that I recognize in an audience of this size, there are going to be people in here who um, would identify as gay or bi or trans or queer or pansexual or asexual or, or the variety of different ways that people now self-identify. I want you to understand that um, I have watched the church handle this in a very ugly way for a very long time. Um, I remember 
uh, years ago, well, I say years ago, but back in the late 90s, <laughs> um, I remember I, was, I started out in prison ministry uh, doing juvenile detention centers and speaking at some prisons. And I remember talking with a friend of mine once as I was headed to go leave for prison. And she's like, it's just so amazing, Alicia, that you go and do prison ministry and you speak to people in prison. And I remember the same friend another time saying, oh, I have this family member who is who, my sister who is gay and I don't want to go near her because I don't want that like, to influence me. And I remember thinking, I'm going to prison to talk to people who have done some very horrible things and you're worried about your sister? And I just remember thinking then, like, as I even heard this topic talked about in Christian circles, and I would get so furious with the way that we, as a Christian body, uh, mishandled this topic, the way that we were... Um, Offensive isn't even the right word. I think it's worse than that. I think the way that we um, mocked, we, we, we slandered, we insulted people because of the fact that they would say that these, this, is the, this is a description of how I like somebody, this is who I am, this is how I feel, whatever it is that they may be. And we felt justified as a church body to make sure we met them, let them know that we find them despicable and disgusting. And that was a catastrophic mess up by the church. And I'm telling you that today the church is paying the price for it. Because we have an LGBTQ community, IA plus community that remembers what people said to them. And so many of these young people that I see looking around here, you may or may not have had tensions with some of your friends because of this issue and because you're a Christian. And it isn't necessarily your fault. It's the fault of the generations that came before you that messed this up. And sadly, you are reaping the consequences of it. And so if somebody in, is in here and has felt completely um, excluded and excommunicated by the church, I want you to know I'm sorry, and that is not Bible. It is not Bible. It is not Jesus. Do I believe that the Bible lays out that the biblical view of marriage and sexual relationships is uh, heterosexually, meaning male and female, in marriage? Yes, I firmly believe that. I think the Bible is clear on that. Do I believe that the Bible is clear on the fact that our maleness or femaleness is not fluid? Yes, I do believe the Bible is clear on that. But I also believe the Bible is over and abundantly clear with how we are to respond to our neighbors how we are to respond to people around us. In fact, I think it's even more over and abundantly clear about how we are to treat other people than it is focusing on creating this entire theology of sexuality. And so for those of you who have in here, in this area, who have been beat down by the church, I'm sorry. It is an embarrassment to me. It's something I've tried to change, and I'm still constantly trying to change the way the church has handled, to handle this issue. And so what I want to do today is I want to see if there's a way that I can maybe walk us through a little bit of understanding why Christianity has the views that it has on sexuality and on gender, and see if maybe we can bring some clarity to this whole thing. Okay? So actually what I want to do to start off with is I actually want to use a very non-Christian source called Tinder. Oh, yes, exactly. In September, I want to, this is a very interesting article written by Vanity Fair in September of 2015. They published an article titled, Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. 
Okay. Now, if you know anything about um, if you know anything about uh, Vanity Fair, guys, there's nothing remotely Christian about Vanity Fair. Okay. So this is once again a, a non-Christian uh, magazine talking about an issue or a non-Christian app called Tinder. Okay. Vanity Fair focuses on fame and beauty and wealth and materialism and money and all these kind of things. And so if you're not familiar with Tinder, which some of you may not be, um, when you get on Tinder, it's a dating app. And the idea that makes it different than maybe like an eHarmony or maybe a match is those tend to be angled more towards marriage. So trying to build long-term relationships. Of course, you can have things that are shorter. But those things are, have a heavy focus on really trying to match people in terms of personalities and characteristics for long-term relationships. Tinder is what's called hookup culture. Now, if you're older than probably 30, which I am, hookup culture, you're like, what? When we were younger, this is going to sound crazy to all you young guys, okay? If I had a friend that called me on the phone at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and said, hey, Alicia, you know, do you want to hang out later on tonight at 7 or 8? I'd be like, yeah. I get off the phone. My mom said, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to go hook up with my friend tonight. We're going to go hang out. Hookup, just a few years ago, meant just connecting and hanging out. That's what it meant. And the younger people are like, what? Okay? But it has changed for all of us older people. You need to know that. And don't use that. I'm going to go hook up with my friend. It's going to mean something very different. Because hookup means actually that I'm going to go have sexual relations with a friend. I'm going to go have sex with a friend. It's a very different definition. So what Tinder essentially is, is it is a website or an app that really is just meant for people to hook up, to have sexual partners or sexual relationships with people. It is much less about capability, although people have met spouses on Tinder and those kind of things. So let me just read you a little bit about what Vanity Fair has to say to us about this interesting, assuming the wind doesn't blow everything away, this interesting uh, hookup culture from Tinder. Let me get this. Phone to the rescue. Okay. Here we go. So um, basically what Vanity Fair did is they went around and they started interviewing people on t that were actually on Tinder as the app. And they started with the guys. Let me hear what some of these guys say, read you what some of these guys say who are on Tinder. This is Alex. He says, with these dating apps, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick up the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. So when you swipe one way, that means, yes, I like this person, I want to hook up. You swipe the other way, it means, you know, I don't like them, I don't want to hook up. So he's saying, you could swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you could rack up 100 girls you slept with in a year. Now, Marty, who prefers Hinge to Tinder, he says he is no slouch at racking up girls. He says he slept with 30 to 40 women in the last year. He says, I, I sort of played that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over. But then they start wanting me to care more, and I just don't. Remember, this is Vanity Fair reporting this stuff. Alex, who seems to be, uh, have a little more of a conscience than Marty, says, dude, that's not cool. I think to an extent it's like sinister. Because I know that the average girl will think that there's a chance that she can turn the tables. If I were like, hey, just want to have sex, very few people would want to meet up with you. Do you think this culture is misogynistic? He asked lightly. Misogynistic basically means like anti-women, doesn't look to support women, thinks women are below them, this kind of idea. So interesting question to ask. So 
let's talk to some of the ladies. Because, of course, the ladies, I mean, the ladies are on here, too. There's got to be some redeeming value. Maybe they meet true love. Maybe they get married, right? There's got to be something. Well, let's see what some of the ladies say. One woman says, it seems like girls don't have any control over the situation, and it shouldn't be like that. Another one says, it's a contest to see which guy cares less, and guys win a lot at caring less. Another girl says, sex should stem from emotional intimacy, and it's the opposite with us right now, and I think it really is kind of destroying the self-images of females. Another girl says, I feel like the body doesn't even matter to the guys as long as you're willing to have sex. Finally, Amanda says, but if you say any of these things out loud, it's like you're weak, you're not independent. You somehow missed the whole memo about third wave feminism. So the women feel like I can't even like express that this is concerning to me the way that guys view me on these apps because then there's some, I'm not supporting women, I'm not pro-women. I mean, it is a dating app after all. And so in talking with some of the men, listen to what finally one of our friends says to us. He says that I've gotten numbers on Tinder just by sending emojis, says John, without actually having a conversation. He holds up its phone with its cracked screen to show a Tinder conversation between him and a young woman who provided her number after he offered a series of emojis. She gives him her number. Now, is that the kind of woman I potentially want to marry? He asks. Probably not. Why do I read you some of these things from Vanity Fair? Because oftentimes, people look at the Christian view on sexuality and say it's oppressive. You're trying to tell me what to do. You're trying to govern me. You're trying to make my life miserable. You're trying to not let me be free, be my true self. But when we actually ask the people who are being free and being their true selves, they aren't always as happy as maybe people are told they are. These women feel used. They feel like they're just property. It doesn't feel like they, it really ma like they matter all to the men. And according to the men, they really don't because they're just trying to rack up a lot of girls. And so my question is not, is it that we need complete sexual freedom? Guys, the reality is, is we do not want full, free sexual freedom. No uh, civilized society believes in sexual freedom, which is why in the state of Pennsylvania, even the state of Pennsylvania has laws and barriers around sexuality, right? It's like, you know, for example, a teacher and a student, not okay. Certain family relationships, not okay. In other words, there are barriers around sexuality that have nothing to do with the church, but have to do with just the human condition and us recognizing that things don't need to be 100% sexually free. So we've got, this is 100% sexual freedom. The state brings it into about here. The culture wants it to go about here, and the church brings it the rest of the way to about here. So the church is not the only group that has boundaries around sexuality. They just have tighter boundaries than other cultures. People in the LGBTQ community do not believe in abusive relationships. They are not supporting that. They don't want people hurt. So they have boundaries too. So having boundaries is normal and it is the way a functioning society should be. So here is the question. People say that we want to be free. But my question is what do you want to be free for? 
my friend um, Nathan used a great example once of, a, of somebody who wanted to was uh, going skydiving. So jumps out the plane, got the parachute on the back. They're falling down. Everything's great. The parachute opens up. Everything's wonderful. They're enjoying this experience until they realize, you know what? This parachute is like holding me back. Like, I'm really not free. As long as I have this parachute on my back, it's restraining me. It's holding me. I've got to get this thing off. So they turn around, and while they're falling freely through the sky, they cut the parachute off. And now what do they have? Complete and total freedom. Nothing is holding them back. But my question is, what are they now free for? Having boundaries, guys, isn't a problem. We want boundaries around certain things. And this person removed their boundaries and now does not have, they have freedom, but they don't necessarily have the best life situation anymore. And I think what this Tinder culture is showing us is that being completely sexually free doesn't bring the joy that so many people think it does. People feel devalued. People feel um, used. And it's simply because true freedom only ever exists within a system of boundaries. It's why we have laws in a free country. A free country with laws. You can't have a free country without laws. If there's no laws and everybody's just free, you have anarchy and we're running around doing whatever we want to each other and nobody can stop us. In order for people to be free, it has to be contained within a system of boundaries. So we can never advocate for free, total sexual expression. Nobody wants that as a culture. That's not going to be healthy for us. Okay? So we're establishing that we need boundaries. That freedom does not give us the pleasure that we think it will. And here's the other thing, guys. Our culture likes to tell us that the only way to experience love is through sex. That's not true. That is not true. You don't just experience love purely through sex. We have so many relationships in our lives that are genuine, loving relationships. That is not the only way. And then Tinder goes ahead and does the opposite, and it shows us that you can experience sex without love. So you have sex without love, and, the, and, and Tinder, from what I've heard, I've never been on it, it, all they ask you for is your name, age, and like maybe like, I think maybe your job or one fact about you, something like that. So people don't even necessarily know your names. When you read some of these stories, they don't even know your names. So it's sex without love, and you see how it's affecting people. But we actually don't need sex in order to experience love. And so what Christianity is trying to do when it puts boundaries around sexuality, because everybody agrees by now, I think, I hope here, that we need boundaries around sexuality, is it's putting boundaries around sexuality because it's trying to protect us. That's what it's trying to do. Because God knows that we are going to be confused in this day and age. Now, with that said, let me just explain something to you. One of the things that I struggle with is that it seems like people will say to me who would hold to a, maybe no religion um, that, you know, your Christianity is so oppressive. I don't hold on to any religion, so I'm completely free to be who I want and do what I want. And so I've taken some time to look at what's in different worldviews. We talked about worldviews a little bit yesterday. Worldview is just the way that it's whatever is impacting the way you believe about what you believe about life, how you talk to people, how you engage people, how you act, these kind of things. And so when I talk to people of different worldviews, or when I learn about different worldviews, 
Let me share with you what's in a different worldview say about homosexuality. Within Islam, there is no, um, there's no tolerance for it. In fact, the way that in, in, in Iran several years ago, two teenage boys were caught in the act of a homosexual act, and they were publicly hanged for what they did. There is zero tolerance in Islam when it comes to homosexuality. It's interesting to me that I don't hear much from the Islamic community in America on homosexuality. It's interesting to me that they're quiet. And I think that's because what are they going to say that the culture is going to like? What about atheism? I was, uh, several years ago, I had a friend of mine, we're still friends, we just haven't talked in a while, um, who was an atheist slash agnostic and a lesbian. We had uh, so many good conversations, man, I just love this girl. We would talk for hours about God and life and all of these kind of things. And we, uh, I remember one day she went to lunch with some friends of mine. They were Christians as well. And my friend was just bold and just said to her, hey, you know, what does your atheistic worldview, what does atheism say about the fact that you are a lesbian? And she said, well, atheism tells me I'm a mistake. And this is why she said that. Let me explain this to you. One of the fundamental, important, and essential values within a naturalistic framework, meaning a, a world where there's no supernatural, it's just natural physical world, the natural physical world we see, which means a world with no God. In this particular view, it is really important that we help our species to survive. You've heard the term survival of the fittest and these kind of things. You want the strong, the smartest, whatever, to survive and help our species, the healthiest, help our species succeed longer. So it's an essential part of our, the survival of our species is reproduction. And so within that worldview, there is no room for somebody like her because she, is not, she does not possess the ability to reproduce because of her attraction to another female. We'll take the science thing out for right now because science is trying to find ways to deal with this issue by making it possible. But the point is, and, and without you take the science piece out, there's no way for her to reproduce. So her worldview of atheism tells her that she is a mistake. Thankfully, my friend who's a Christian took the opportunity to jump on it and said, hey, you know what? That's really a shame because, because I'm a Christian, I can look at you and I can say you were created in the image of God and you are not a mistake. But you are beautiful and you are valuable. And this is why in spite of the restrictions around sexuality within Christianity, I am glad that I hold the Christian view and not one of those two other views. The famous atheist Richard Dawkins was once asked, what where is the role of a homosexual within, um, within like, your, your worldview? If any of you heard of Richard Dawkins, do I have any Richard Dawkins people? So a few of you. Let me just, Richard Dawkins is, and I'm using this term loosely, he's kind of the modern god of atheism, okay? He is kind of a, the, the head honcho when it comes to atheism right now in our culture. He's older now, so some people are going to start to replace him. But he is kind of the one that has thrown, um, given a lot of our modern-day argumentation to atheism. And so he was asking, he was asked, how does evolution explain homosexuality? So here's what he offered, a couple hypotheses. Number one, homosexual people can babysit for heterosexual couples 
those heterosexual couples can then go out on dates, go to movies, go to concerts. It would tighten their bond and they would therefore produce more children, which helps our species survive. So you're telling me the value of the homosexual in an evolutionary process is that they are a babysitter? This is his stuff, guys, not mine. Somebody else has said, I've heard another atheist say, that perhaps we will discover at some point that the, uh, a gay gene um, actually creates better musicians, better doctors, and this kind of thing. And I'm like, huh. So your value then to our culture is that you can be a doctor and help me. You can be a musician and make great music for me. In other words, your value is tied up with what you can give me. So now we've gotten babysitters, and you need to do something that is beneficial to me as a person, and then I can find you have a role in the evolutionary process. It's interesting to me because the Roe v. Wade situation has, the Supreme Court's ruling has changed some things here. Because had I been speaking to you two months ago or a month ago, I would have told you, and I still do, I hope we never find a gay gene. Some people, are, they're looking for it to see if we can find a gay gene, because if we find a gene that indicates that somebody has a biological proclivity towards being gay, then that means, therefore, that behavior is okay. Here is my issue with that. A month or two ago, now we'll have to see how things change, we were great at saying this, this being doesn't belong in the world, this one doesn't belong in the world, this one doesn't belong in the world, this one has Down syndrome, so we'll abort that one, this one will abort, and we aborted children that we didn't want or we didn't think had value. Imagine what would happen if we had found a gay gene. This Roe v. Wade decision, as angry as it's, gonna, as it's made a lot of people, may have just saved a lot of gay people from being aborted had we found a gay gene. Because as a Christian, I don't care if you have a gay gene or not. I don't care what, the, what it is. You still have a right to life. Because, like I said yesterday, the value of an artwork is not wrapped up in what somebody else thinks of it. The value is imprinted on it by the name of the artist who painted the artwork. So what I think about what your value is is completely irrelevant. What I think about the value of what artwork is is completely irrelevant. All that matters is who made that painting. That's where the value comes from, and the value of us comes from who made us. So I don't care about the gay gene or any of these other genes because the value of your life was never placed in my hands in the first place. But from someone who comes from an evolutionary, naturalistic perspective, what would they say to that? We're going to come back to that topic in a bit, but I want to play a little game of like, a, like who am I with you for a second. I'm going to read you a couple different sentences, and you kind of envision in your mind who you think I'm talking about. Ready? My parents, how I was born does not define who I am. Once I actually, but once I actually came out as this is who I am and owned it, I haven't gone back. When this person was asked about how they feel growing up, they said it felt oppressive because I had to constantly mask and subordinate and repress parts of myself in order to survive socially. Our society still believes that blank is biological and that 
blank is not a social construct. If any of these words sound familiar to you, you might be thinking, am I speaking about someone who would identify as trans? Someone who would say, um, how I was born doesn't define who I am. When I came out, I've owned and haven't gone back. Our society believes that something is biological and that it's not a social contract, whatever way you want to put it in there. But actually, these are not the words of a trans person. These are the words of a woman named Rachel Dolezal. Have any of you heard of Rachel Dolezal? More and more of you may have now because they made a Netflix uh, documentary on her, which is very interesting. Rachel um, worked for the NAACP in Spokane, Washington, um, and she made headlines several years ago when people who, she had been t telling everybody that she was a black woman, and uh, her parents basically outed her and said, actually, no, she's very, very white. They showed pictures of her as a 16-year-old, I believe, and she's blonde hair, blue eyes. And they've done genetic testing on her, and she has, like, no black genes going back, like, hundreds of years. So she, she married a black man, calls herself black, um, whereas, um, uh, like, has children who are mixed, went to, um, I think it was Howard, which is a historically black college university, HBCU, and she calls herself transracial. In other words, for her, race is fluid. And she matches her argument with the transgender argumentation. Just like gender is fluid and the biology doesn't matter, the same thing with race. So she can be a different race because race is fluid. It doesn't matter how you were born or what you look like. She started identifying herself as black at five years old. And in her self-portrait, she drew pictures of herself as a kid with a person with brown skin and black curly hair. So people have, people, when she came out, Twitter ripped her apart. They called her a race faker, a liar, a con artist. She's got death threats, tons of hate mail. She's had to move, had a hard time getting jobs because everybody recognized her face. Her kids, who are teenagers, have to live with all of this craziness. The response from the black community, from the woman who said, I, I am black, let me read you what some of the black community said. They felt, they were very angry. And they said that Rachel's demonstrating white privilege because she has the ability to be anyone she wants. If she gets pulled over by a police officer, let's say, she can say she's white or she can say that she's black, whatever might work in her favor. The point is, she can use her race to her advantage and other people can't. She can choose when she wants to be white and when she wants to be black. Other people in the black community were just so angry with her because you can't just call yourself something that, that, that just because you call yourself something doesn't mean that's what you are. You can't be black if you're born white. That's impossible, they said. Other people said that race is biological. It's not something you pick and choose. And other people said, well, there's more to a black person than just their skin color. They also have the experience of being a black person. The reason why I raise Rachel's story with you is because of the double standard that I see in our society. When Rachel who truly feels that she is black because she identifies with black culture, she identifies with the black community, her husband's black, she connects better with them, she understands them better, so she therefore feels like she is black. And we criticize her up to wazoo and tell her, call her all kind of names, but yet she uses the exact same arguments. In fact, if you watch a Netflix documentary or read any of the articles and things she's put out, she matches all her arguments with the transgender community. If they can be something different than their biological birth says that they are, then why can't I? 
And you've seen this start to spread, guys. You see that I, I read an article of a, of a gentleman in the UK, I believe he is, who's like, I think in his 60s, and he's on dating apps, and he's having a hard time finding a girl. So he petitioned for the UK to legally change his age down to like 30-something. In other words, once we open up the door and we say, it's all free, guys, then everything is all free. Remember we said in the beginning, we want boundaries around these things. We do not want total freedom or it's going to be absolute craziness here. We need boundaries. And so what people have said is, look, you can't, we, we want that boundary around race. You can't, if you're, if you're born white, you can't say you're black. If you're born black, you can't say you're white. But with male and female, we've made an exception. I've been um, reading some Twitter posts by some people on Twitter who, are, who identify as trans. And the stories are really, really sad. I'm not going to go into them because the language is not something I can say in this kind of audience. But they talk about what their surgeries were like to go from male to female. And it is horrific, guys. So bad that they have, they said, they started them off, one of them started off her tweet saying, these are the things that they don't tell you. Let's just say the nerves don't all grow back. You are left with permanent damage that can no longer be fixed. And they are petitioning for more and more people to know what a trans surgery is actually like. I will give you their names so that you in your own time can go ahead and read them if you're on Twitter. One, her name is Tulip R. And it's T-U-L-L-I-P, capital R. So it's at Tulip R, T-U-L-L-I-P. And she is born male, transitioned to female, realized that doesn't work and is transitioning back to female. Soren is another person, S-O-R-E-N. I don't know if I have the rest of their um, Twitter handle there. Um, let me see. It's Soren. Soren, and it's, I think it's Aldaco, so it's A-L-D-A-C-O. S-O-R-E-N-A-L-D-A-C-O. And talked about the extremely... She, went, she was going female to male. Talked about the, 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 how disastrous the surgery was for her. There are people that are coming out, guys, that are talking about how horrific all of these things actually are, but nobody's allowed to talk about it. Your tweets get censored. You lose your medical license. You're not allowed to say things. But let me read you from some people that are maybe a bit more popular. You may or may not know them. But Alexis Arquette, so you probably are familiar with, the, with Robert Arquette, or Patricia or David Arquette, who are famous actors and actresses. Oh, excuse me, Alexis was born Robert, so the siblings are Patricia and David. And in 2004, at the age of 35, Robert began tra physically transitioning to Alexis, so male to female. But the, the transition didn't bring her the comfort, peace of mind, nor the special love that she expected to find. And so in 2013, nine years later, she began transitioning back to a male. And here's what she said. Putting on a dress doesn't biologically change anything, nor does a sex change. She said that sex reassignment is physically impossible. 
All you can do is adopt these superficial characteristics, but the biology will never change. I want to read you another story from a uh, um, male to female, Chelsea Attenley, um, who was in the UK. Oh, just really quickly, Alexis Arquette sadly passed away from an AIDS liver infection in 2016. Trans Chelsea Attenley is a little bit of an interesting situation because Chelsea lived in the UK. If you're familiar with the UK health system, they have a universal health care system there, which meant any medical procedures that he had to become a female were done in the national health care system, which would mean they were done with taxpayer dollars. Okay, so that was kind of an interesting kind of case because people were like, should we be paying for these surgeries? But Chelsea had a 10,000 pound sex change and became a woman. Decided this doesn't work, I don't feel like a woman, and decided she wanted to have surgery to bring her back to being a male. That was 14,000 pounds to bring her back. So 10,000 to become a female, 14,000 to bring her back to a male. Born, um, living in London, she said, I've always longed to, to be a woman, but no amount of surgery can give me an actual female body and I feel like I'm living a lie. It's exhausting putting on makeup and wearing heels all the time. I'm like, honey, I could have told you that. I mean, we didn't need any surgery, didn't need advice, the makeup and heels, I mean, this is as good as it gets. No makeup, girl, that's just me, right? The heels thing is horrible, yes. We, there's many of us that could have told you that. But she said, even, even after all those things, I don't feel like a proper woman. I suffered from depression and anxiety as a result of the hormones. I'm realizing it would have been easier to stop fighting the way I look naturally and accept that I was born a man physically. Somebody asked her why she wants to go back to being a man, and she said, I thought the surgery would make me feel complete, but it didn't. I knew deep down that even though I had surgery, I'd still been born a man, but I tried my best to black out the feelings. Sadly, Chelsea died. I don't think they fully know um, how, but she was found, I believe, on a picnic bench in the park, um, passed away in 2016. The tragedy of these stories is very real. Not everybody who transitions is going to have these stories. Of course not. There's many people who transition who have wonderful stories where the surgeries did go the way they want and they feel much better. But this, these are the stories that are not always talked about because they're not always allowed to be talked about. And part of the challenge that I have as I think through some of these issues more is this, twofold. Number one, guys, in every cell of your body is your DNA. And in your DNA, you're either XX if you're female or XY if you're male. We can change certain physical things, but we cannot change each individual cell in your body that identifies you as male or female. And so when Christianity tries to weigh into this issue and it looks back in the very beginning of Genesis when it said that God made them male and female, male and female, he created them. That created is a, talking about a physical description. You look at the Hebrew. It's talking about a physical description. They were made male and female physically. This was not a psychological male and female. It wasn't an emotional or mental male and female. They were physically created male and female. And what Christianity is trying to do, albeit not well, is what they're trying to do is help people who feel confused. That's why it's called gender dysphoria. 
There's a sense in which people feel like, look, I'm physically this way, but I feel this way. And the question is, which do I listen to? Do I listen to the feeling or do I listen to the physical? And Christianity says, I hear you. That is a legitimate wrestle. So let me answer it for you. According to the creator, you are physically created male and female. So listen to the physical. But when a Christian does it, they are called oppressing people or being homophobic or transphobic or things like that. But it's more a matter of just trying to shed light and understanding on this topic. It is not about trying to make somebody feel oppressed. When you are confused and you don't know which way to go, and somebody's trying to point you in the direction, I get that it may not be the way that we want to go, but that doesn't mean that that other way isn't the best way for you. Some of my questions that I would have to ask is when I pe hear people say, but I feel female, and I, as a female, I don't even know what it means to feel female. How do we know that these feelings that we have that are telling us that's a female feeling, how do you know that? If you've never been female, how do you know that that's, a, that's the feeling that females get? What does it really mean to feel female? What does it really mean to feel male? I don't even know when I'm a female. But I think another major issue that needs to be addressed, and this is why some of the feminist movement is, having, is really struggling with the transgender movement. Because essentially what people are doing is they are removing certain body parts, growing their hair long, grow, removing or enhancing certain body parts, growing their hair long, putting on maybe a tight dress to be a nice shaped female, putting on some makeup and some heels, and they're calling themselves a female. And essentially what they've done is they say, all I need to do to be a female is to look physically sexually attractive. Long hair, great nails, tight dress, good chest, makeup, heels. That's all there is to being a female. And they just sent the feminist movement back 50 years. And many of the feminist movement is like, what are you doing? You just made it all about our physical, external attributes anymore. As if all we are is sexual objects. All we are is our physical appearances. We've been trying to let people know that we are more than that. We're smart. We're scientists. We're mathematicians. We're all, do all these amazing things. And you've made it about the dress and the hair and the makeup again. And so what people are trying to do when they speak into this issue is the same thing that they're trying to communicate to Rachel. Rachel, honey, I know you were born white and you really, every ounce of you feels black. But guess what? You don't have to darken your skin, change your hair in order to be black. The black community will accept you as a friend anyways. And what people are trying to do is say the same thing. Look, I get our feelings can tell us all kind of things that are wrong. And when you, if any of you ever sat with a, a, a psychologist, I'm a big fan of getting psychology help. I know sometimes culturally people are not. I am. I went to a psychologist for four years because I had stuff I needed to sort through. And one of the things that they do is they teach you that your emotions are deceptive. Your emotions can lie. The classic example is phobias, okay? Here, this is probably the worst example to use because you're all sitting on the ground. But all of a sudden, a spider goes by, and what do people do? They freak out. Okay, the reality is, the spider is, number one, more scared of you than you are, than, than you are them. 
and they're like eight feet from you or six feet from you, you can walk faster than they can crawl, but you're terrified and you jump up and you scream and your body produces this reaction of fear and get out of here, you're in danger. But you're not. In other words, your emotions, while they're real and they're valid, they are conveying something that is not true. You do not have to be scared. You don't have to have fear. And same thing, people get on an escalator or an elevator and they stand there and they're petrified. Phobias is a great example of how our emotions and our feelings can mislead us and warp our ability to know what truth is. And so what a therapist is going to do is they are constantly trying to get you from your feelings back into your head. Alicia, you don't have to be scared about that spider. Alicia, you don't have to be scared about that elevator. You don't have to be scared about that. They're constantly trying to get you to think about the situation, recognize the truth of the situation. You don't have anything to be scared of. You're working yourself up. This isn't reality. And they're trying to get you back to thinking and get you out of your emotions. That's what psychology does so oftentimes in therapy. But yet, we tell people regardless of where they are on the spectrum, LGBT, that let your feelings be your guide. And the reality is, guys, our feelings can tell us the wrong thing. So finally, before I turn over to a time of Q&A, oh, man, our time goes so fast. Okay, I'm going to try and be really quick. Let's do the Bible part of this. Let's do the, the, the Bible and marriage part. I can't even go into so much. There's so much other good stuff. I would encourage you guys to read, and maybe it'll come up in Q&A, um, Abigail Schreier. Have any of you ever heard of Abigail Schreier? A one person? Okay. Guys, I was, she wrote a book called The Irreversible Damage. As far as I know, she is not a Christian. She, does not, she is not against trans, um, she's not against transitioning as adults. But she warns us that not all children that say they are trans are actually trans. And there's studies coming out that another woman is Deborah So, S-O-H. And these women are looking at some of these studies and, and, and looking at the large number of trans uh, children and saying there's problems here. Because historically, trans, um, transgenderism was traditionally a male to female kind of thing. Traditionally, they were the number one category were men to female, and the female to male was very small. That is completely swapped, and we're seeing large numbers of female to male in teenagers. And they're like, something's happened here. And something, something that's called uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria. See, now I'm going to go into it. We'll, have to get, we'll get to the Bible stuff in a second. Rapid onset gender dysphoria. Essentially, what they've noticed is that when one girl in a group of girls says that I am, I believe I'm male, the way that women respond to each other is they respond very empathetically and they identify themselves with other people. So when one girl says, I am trans, all of her other girlfriends that are with her in a group say, oh, well, we are too then. And that's why they're like, why are we seeing groups, mass groups of girls becoming trans together? That's odd. And so what they're finding is that's the way that girls relate to each other. And also also another reason why, as I've been told, when in a hospital, you don't put anorexic patients like in close vicinity with each other because they will feed off each other and encourage each other and empathize with each other. It's the way that girls interact. Whereas the guys in the guy group, one says, hey, I think I'm female. The guys are like, great, let's go play basketball. Like they're just, okay, they just, they just don't, they just don't engage that way. It's just a different kind of relationship. 
And so they're seeing this sudden onset, uh, sudden rapid onset gender dysphoria in young girls. Additionally, what they're finding is that many of these girls are white, middle, upper class uh, teenage girls. And the reason why that matters is if you look at our society over the last several years, it's, they've made it almost a sin to be white. And so you have people who are white and have been feeling like, oh my goodness, it's a really bad thing that I'm white. But if I'm trans, I move from the, the group that is the oppressor to the group that is the oppressed. All of a sudden people love me now. Now I'm the victim. People support me. People have sympathy for me. People love me. People um, do things for me. In other words, when I was white, upper middle class, I was a bad person. When I switch and I become trans, now I'm the victim. These are not, as far as I know, she is not a Christian woman. These are just people who are willing to put their message out. Their books have gotten pulled, and then people cause an uproar, then the stores put them back in. But read, um, you can even find videos on Abigail Schreier on YouTube. Irreversible Damage is her book, and I would encourage you to read that. Deborah So, S-O-H, is another one that looks at, looks at these kind of things, and I think they would be re they're really helpful for us on this. All right, now let's get to some of the Bible stuff. Let's talk about marriage real quick. Part of our struggle, guys, is we don't understand marriage, okay? The reality is the way we see things is that there are people who are, um, people who are LGBTQ are other than, than people, and that's the wrong way to look at it, okay? That's, that's not the Christian way to look at it. The Christian view has one situation where sex is to be engaged with. It is heterosexually in marriage. That's it. Christianity does not approve of heterosexuality outside of marriage. Why aren't we talking about that? We like to pick, pick at LGBTQ people knowing that that's not just what the Bible talks about. The Bible says there's one way to get it right, and there's a lot of ways you can get it wrong. Adultery is another one. Having multiple sex partners, um, this, um, oh, it's polyamory. That, that, that's happening right now. People have, are married to multiple people or have multiple relationships, open marriages where they're married, but they have many other sexual partners. That's wrong too, even if it's heterosexual. The biblical standard is that there's one way in marriage heterosexually, but there's many other ways heterosexually you can get it wrong, guys. It's not just about the LGBTQ community. Stop picking on them. We get this wrong who are people who are straight, who are heterosexual. We get this wrong too. And we blind ourselves and we poke our fingers over at other people. So the biblical standard is about one way. Why? Because as the designer, God knows the best way in which he's designed you to function. There is an intentionality behind your design. So here's the thing. Marriage in the Bible is not a contract. Contracts are, if you do this, then I will do this. So if you come and fix my house, then I will pay you this money. It may, there's a specific time frame. If you uh, come and you do this thing for these three months um, and everything goes great, that's the end of our contract, those kind of things. That's a contract. Marriage is not a contract in the Bible. It's a covenant. Okay? Contracts are conditional. Covenants are unconditional. They are permanent. That's why you hear people make their vows in sickness and health and richer and poor. Right? They're saying no matter what the good or the bad is, I'm making this covenant. And so interestingly, 
Secondly, it's, marriage is talking about is one flesh. In Genesis 2, 23, it talks about it. Ephesians 5, 31, it talks about it. And in Matthew 19, 6. So Genesis 2, 23. Ephesians 5, 31. Matthew 19, 6. They talk about how marriage is one flesh. And let me talk to you a little bit about what some of the Greek is in Matthew 19, 6. Let me open this up here and read you this particular passage. So this is Jesus saying, uh, I'll start at verse 5. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, we've got two key words in here. We have flesh, they become one flesh, and we've got joined. When you look at the Greek, the original understanding and the definition of these words, joined, it means to glue, to cleave to, to stick or cement together. And when it talks about flesh, one flesh, it's talking about they will become one body physically. It is a physical description of flesh. So they are to become physically one, which is why we are physically designed to become one in marriage. So that idea of joining and being cemented together physically is there as well. Number three, marriage and the church. Marriage is supposed to be a relationship or a modeling of Christ's love with the church. And so in Ephesians 5, um, verse 31 for this reason, oh, well, let me start 29. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Guys, this is a passage that caused a lot of, of of issues because we because it starts off with wives submit and people lose their minds. Once again, if you heard me, were any of you at the devotion I did this morning at 9 something a.m.? Okay, and I talked a lot about understanding culture and context. If you understand culture and context of this Ephesians 5 passages, passage, we think in 2022, wives submit, that's horrific. People reading this passage in Ephesians 5 then would have said, it says husbands love? Well, that's life shattering. The fact that it says husbands love your wife and it says wives respect your husband. It doesn't even tell women to love their husbands. Should we then say, well, women shouldn't love their husbands? Of course not. The, the, the life-changing part of this, of this passage was husbands being told to love your wife as Christ loved the church and to give your body up for her. That's what was remarkable about this passage. But we reading through 2022 eyes get stuck in the submit and we miss all the good stuff after it. You got to go back to the culture and context to understand these things. But regardless, marriage is supposed to model Christ's relationship to the church. And finally, can we get love wrong? You better believe it, guys. We get love wrong all the time. There's a woman right now. Once again, guys, we talked about boundaries. We need boundaries, okay? But if we start to move those boundaries, the question is, when does it stop moving? There's a woman in, I want to say the UK right now, who is in love with chandeliers, and she wants to marry one of the particular chandeliers. She puts one of them in bed with her, not the one that she wants to marry because that one's too big. And so she's petitioned the UK to allow, to allow her to marry a chandelier. She's serious, though. She truly loves. And look, guys, if we're saying that we can just let love, love, and all these things are going to be free, 
then why can't she? In other words, if we're willing to open up the boundaries, right? Christianity gives us one way and says that everything else is going to be problematic. Once we start to say, well, there's two ways or three ways or four ways or five ways we can experience love, the question is why stop at five? Why not go to 50 ways? Who's telling me to stop at five? And once we open up that door, well, now we have all these other things. So I just want to leave you with some of those things to think about today. I'm going to give you some time for Q&A. I know I've taken you almost up to pretty much our end time, but that's because there's so much. Sexually transgender, there's just a lot to talk about. Um, so let me turn over to you for Q&A. And I know that you're spread all around. Um, and so I'll do my best to hear you. You're welcome to ask me questions on this. Or you're welcome to ask me questions on something else I have said in one of the other talks or haven't said or whatever. I am totally willing to answer questions on anything that I can. It doesn't have to be on this topic. So with that said, who has the very first question? Right in the front here. Go right ahead. So she's asking me, what is the new um, definition of love? Because it seems to be quite confusing, um, basically in our culture today. Um, I don't know if people would really put parameters around love. I think, I think that if you heard me this morning, I t I've talked about how love is not just a feeling, it's not just an emotion, but it's an action. 1 Corinthians 13 shows us that love is an action. It says being patient, being kind, keeps no record of wrongs. These are all... Love is all about your treatment and engagement with somebody else. So it isn't just about a feeling. It's also about it's how you treat. It's a love. It's in a feeling and an action combined. Um, I think our culture is saying love is essentially whatever you want it to be. If you want to love an, uh, you know, a married couple, then you can love a married couple. If you want to love whoever, and, but we also still have boundaries. We still put boundaries around it. Because you can't love this one over here. That's not appropriate. Right? So, we, so it's like we create our own boundaries. So I would say love is fluid. It's what you want it to be for many people. And I'm not belittling that. I think two women who are married genuinely love each other. I don't, I, I, I don't think people are just making this stuff up. I think there's genuine love, guys. I think you can genuinely feel love for somebody of the same sex. Same thing with the men. These people genuinely love each other. So this isn't fake love. This isn't people just trying to put on a show. They genuinely feel that, and they feel like it's a good thing because I'm not hurting anybody except for the fact that the person that they're hurting is actually themselves. And while it, feel, it brings so much fulfillment to be with somebody, believe you me, I get it. I'm single. It would be great to be with somebody. I get what it's like to be single. And I get the desire to be with somebody. But God asked the same thing of me that he asked of somebody in the LGBTQ community. Alicia, unless you meet and marry somebody heterosexually, this is how it's going to be for you. And he asks the same thing of me that he does of somebody in that community, regardless of who I want to love. If I start to love a married man, God's not going to prove it just because I want to get married. So I have boundaries. God has boundaries around all of us to protect us, and they're there for a reason. Next question. Yes. Okay, great. So she said, I like what you said about marriage in the Bible, but what do you say about the people in the Old Testament who had many wives? You're absolutely right. We got um, Solomon, they think, had somewhere upwards of maybe 700. Um, there's a good chance he didn't know any of them. These are, a lot of these are contractual marriages that would happen between kingdoms. Okay, so he probably, he may not have even known him. And clearly, 
um, David was interested in Bathsheba. He clearly loved her, and right. But yet, yes, people have people had multiple wives. Here's what you don't find in the Old Testament: is God saying, "I want you to take these three women as your wife." That's the difference. So the Old Testament is telling us what people did, not what people, not what God wants people to do. And so God wasn't saying, do all this. That's why you see these verses, a man will leave his mother and father, and the two will become one, right? You see this. That's what God says. But then, of course, love is love. I'm going to do what I want. Or culturally, that really wasn't all that odd. I get that it's odd now, and it's not okay. But in that culture, that really was not all that odd, okay? Keep in mind, too, guys, a lot of stuff you read in the Old Testament, this is just a side note. Guys, there's no social welfare system. There's no universal health care. There's no social security. There's no um, um, food stamps. When a woman isn't married, life is tough for her. No one is going to take care of her when her parents die or, or whatever. Like, you, like a woman married, she cleaved to her husband and his family. So this idea of, of one man being with multiple women, yeah, that's crazy for us today. But for many people then, there was no other way for survival. Not saying that God told them to do it. I'm just saying that's why that culture viewed things in the way that they did. Thank you for that question. Yes, here, and then I'm going to go over here. Oh, that was mean. No, she said, do you think that it's not, it's totally fine. I get this question. She said, do you think that people who are LGBTQ can be Christian? You said what? I mean, you are totally welcome to tell us your answer. I mean, that would be fine. That gets me out of it, you know? She's so sweet. What's your name? Bella? Thanks, for, thanks, Bella, for that question. I'm just giving you her time, sweetheart. It's a good question. Um, so Bella says yes. And, you know, I'm, here's, the, here's the thing. Let me read you what the Bible says. Because we don't, need, we don't really care what Alicia says at the end of the day. Right? Okay. Okay, Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That to me even though people still don't like the Christian message of Jesus being the only way, that to me is the best way to have a relationship with God. It is, um, you clear with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe your heart that he was resurrected, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What it doesn't say is if you believe these things and do these things, you will be saved, right? It doesn't tie it with actions. The minute I say someone, if someone says, I believe these things and I confess these things, and I say, but also they're, they're LGBT, that I'm saying that salvation is based off of their works. And that is the struggle. So I would say this. Do I think, yes, um, do I think that somebody can be um, LGBTQ and be a Christian? Yes. But do I think the Holy Spirit works in every one of us once we become Christians to be more like him? Yes. In other words, I don't want anybody. My friend, the same friend, this atheist friend I was telling you about earlier that said that she was a mistake. Evolution tells her she's a mistake. Um, she, she thought, when I first said to her, hey, I'd love to talk with you about just your atheism, 
And she was like, and I'm saying I'm a Christian. She was really hesitant because she's like, you know, when I came out in the church, people basically just shunned me and they just like didn't want to do with me. They insulted me. So she was scared that I was going to do the same thing to her. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. You're not going to get that from me. In fact, if I'm with you and I hear a Christian doing that to you, it's going to be a whole different kind of encounter. So I have no problem standing up to the Christian because we, we, we need to end this nonsense in the way that we've treated this community. These are image bearers of God. Jesus died for them. And we need to get this together. So I said to her, I said, no, I, you know, I won't do it to you. And she thought I'd want to talk with her about her homosexuality. I'm like, I just, I don't really care about your homosexuality. Like, I don't care that you're gay. My, my ultimate goal with you is not to make you straight. If I had the power, which I don't have, but if I had the power to take somebody who is gay and make them straight, I brought them no closer to Jesus Christ. So what was the point? That's why we got to get so get out of our mind this obsession with changing people that doesn't bring them any closer to Jesus. I don't need, my goal is not to make you straight. My goal is for you to encounter him. And when you encounter him, the Holy Spirit works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. And he may not do that right away. But he will work in us. So even if you talk to people right now, some of the really popular ones are people like Jackie Hill Perry, Rosaria Butterfield, Sam Albury. All these guys are same-sex attracted Christians. Okay? So someone who says, I am same-sex attracted or I'm gay, that's just a description of who they like. Christianity does not see um, sexuality as identity. Christianity sees your sexuality as a description of your actions, but your identity is that you are a valuable creation of a creator. So we don't marry the two together. Um, the LGBTQ community does, and they say sexuality, this is who I am. Christianity pulls those apart. And so we would say um, the, these words, LGB, the, these are descriptions of who you're attracted to. So, but that doesn't that's not who you are. So there will be many Christians who are same-sex attracted and are Christians, and some of them have even gotten married to opposite sex spouses. So in other words, if you were to talk to some of these women who have gotten, who were same-sex attracted, maybe were involved in same-sex relationships and are now married to men, what they'll tell you is that even though they are now a Christian and even though they are now married to a man, it does not mean those desires for women have disappeared. They still have them. But the reality, what changed for them was that they said, they encounter Jesus. They say, if I believe that this Bible is true and what he's saying in here is true, then I can submit my desires to him. And if I submit my desires to him, then I will no longer act in this way. But it's because first, God was, it was first that they realized that I can trust the moral character of this God. And when they could do that, then they were willing to submit their desires. And then they fell in love with a man whom they love, they were able to find a man that they actually love this man genuinely and are married and are in great relationships right now. But that doesn't mean those desires are gone. So can you be gay and a Christian? Yes. They would technically have to identify as probably bisexual because they're attracted to both, but they're not acting on the other ones because they've submitted it to the authority of who God is. So hopefully that, that helps you. And I told her I was going over here somewhere. There she is. How can we be an advocate and ally to the LGBTQ community? I'm going to tell you guys, this is getting much harder. Because even if you just want to be a friend, 
it, it, our society and our culture basically says, if you don't agree with me in every area of life, you can't even be my friend. You guys have probably seen all the people defending each other on Facebook right now over the, over the Roe v. Wade stuff and all this craziness. Guys, that's never been, our, it's never been the way we did. We never said, do I agree? We never put our friends through this bulleted 10-point kind of checklist in order to be their friends before. Why are we doing that now? We find commonalities that we like, same kind of music. We like to go out to eat. We like to do this particular activity. And we have diversified friends. And in fact, as Christians, you should have diversified friends. Please don't live in a Christian bubble. Because then people never know that Christians are really cool people. And all they know of Christians are the people they see on TV. And that's usually pretty ugly. And I usually have to fix the damage that they've done. We should have diverse belief systems and Muslims and atheists and Hindus and new age people. We, our, our circle should be diverse. Jesus walked through the streets. He encountered people. He didn't hide out in the religious temple. He was in the crowd with the public. He just didn't act like them. So my friend, I would tell you this is getting much harder. I think with the younger generation, the teenage generation, you guys might be able to be more, build more friendships even though you may disagree with somebody's orientation. I think that maybe the 14, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, that kind of crew is a bit more forgiving than the adult population who seems to have no tolerance for anybody who holds to a different view than they do. So I would say make friends, just be a friend. And don't make somebody's sexuality be the topic of your conversation. We feel this compulsion that, oh, I've got to talk to this person about how I disagree with their sexuality. Guys, unless they've been living under a rock, they know what you as a Christian think of their sexuality. You don't have to go over it all the time. And if you think there is any confusion, you can find a way to say it in a gentle way um, by just saying, yeah, you know, whatever, I don't know, whatever you want to say when a situation comes up. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, you know, my particular family really believes that, um, that marriage is between a man and a woman, but you know what? They also believe that, or we also believe, and I also believe as your friend, that my Bible tells me that no greater love does anybody have than this, and they lay down their life for a friend. In other words, the greatest way I can show love to you is by giving my life for you. So this is how we view marriage. This is how you view it. Great. You want to go watch a movie? Let's move on. Like, that's it. You just, if, if you want to get in there in some kind of way, get it in there. But don't belabor the point. Because then what you've done is you make Christianity all about deeds and works. And Jesus died on the cross so that we could be freed from that. Okay? So I would just encourage you, do your best to be friends now. And know that the way the culture is doing things, it's making it really hard for us to have long-standing relationships. I know I've gone over in time. So if you need to go, I get it. You can go ahead and go. And I will stay here and just field some more questions for people who have questions. So just no, no hate from me. Thank you, guys. And I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm doing Why I'm Not an Atheist here at 2 o'clock. And then Saturday is Why Isn't God More Obvious? And then devotional stage on, on uh, tomorrow morning on Isaiah 9 in the Old Testament. Yes. Okay. All right, so he's basically saying, how do we, what is the church's response to gay marriage? And I understand this question. Um, well, how is the church supposed to respond to it? I think it's perfectly fine for the church to have its own standards based on the convictions of the Bible as to how that church is going to operate and run. And I think the church as a building, uh, as a church body, can have that standard. 
And I think we as individual members of the church should have that standard on gay marriage. The problem is, is when we make that be our only platform. We need to not let gay marriage be the platform. And so I think it's okay for churches to say, look, this is our stance. I get that you hold a different perspective, but as long as you come to this church, just know that this is where we stand, but you're still welcome to come and hang around and learn, but we just disagree on this. Um, guys, and churches do this all the time, right? We got the reformers, we got the non-reformers, you know, got the Calvinists, you got the Arminianists, you got women should preach, women shouldn't preach, you got infant baptism, adult baptism. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we disagree with as a church body all the time anyways. And we still go to those churches, Okay, it's no different. But so if some now if somebody's trying to, you know, change people in the church to change their view perspective altogether, that'd be a different thing. But I think it's fine for the church to hold that stance. I think that's the responsibility of the church to hold that stance that they feel like is in line with the Bible because the church is representing the body of Christ. Does that help at all? Does that mean we shouldn't make it a governmental thing? I think, guys, I, I think as citizens of this country, we vote with how we feel like it should be vote. We should vote. And when we lose, we lose. Like, calm down. Really. Like, Jesus is not dethroned. Your eternity hasn't changed. Um, let, me, let me tell you what I'm watching right now. In 2000, was it 15 or so? 2016, I was living in Boston, Massachusetts. And that was when the, federal, the Supreme Court passed gay marriage in our country. And I watched Christians lose their everlasting minds. Let me tell you something, guys. I was living in Massachusetts. Massachusetts had legalized gay marriage like seven years prior. And guess what? We were still there as Christians, still going to church. Everything was fine. And we lost our minds thinking like, oh, my goodness, look at what's happening. It is bad. It is wrong. It's not what we necessarily stand for as Christians. But you don't need to panic. In the grand scheme of things, it hasn't dethroned God. Nothing has changed terms of the truth of the text. And now what I'm watching is Roe v. Wade has been overturned, and I'm watching the pro-choice community lose their minds. So we see, it's like, what the Supreme Court goes with, the other, the group that loses, loses their minds. Oh, my goodness, my, my rights are taken, and, and no, and people are, I'm so tired of you religious, oppressed people as if all the people who are pro-life are religious. That is not true. There's many atheists that are pro-life. And so what I'm watching is us being so easily swayed by the ruling of a judges in a court. As Christians, guys, our foundation and our certainty does not lie here. This earth, this culture is going to be at war with us. This is what God told us. Jesus told us, in this world you have many tribulations, be of good cheer. Why? Because the Supreme Court's going to go your way? No. Be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. That hasn't changed. So what I think we vote, and I think we vote in the way that we need to be voting, um, in the way that we feel that God directs us to, or that we feel as Christians we should vote. But when we lose, we recognize, okay, Lord, here we go. Pick up and let's get back to another day. Because the reality is people are still going to hell while Christians are falling out, losing their minds because something didn't go their way. We don't have time for that. Okay? I see you, and then I saw a hand somewhere over here somewhere. So we'll go over here. Why, why do people thinking, think being gay is contagious? Well, okay, I've never been asked that question. Um, so I think there is, there is some aspect of within Christianity that certain, a certain there, there, is a, there is a spiritual aspect that oftentimes people don't like to talk about. And this idea that are, is, there, is somebody a liar or somebody a gossip or somebody... 
um, a really evil person because there is a spiritual demonic aspect to what they're doing. And so that's always on the table. I think so. I think that there, I think the spiritual demonic realm is something that we as Christians don't like to think about very often. Um, but I think that's always on the table. And so I think for some people, they are concerned about the demonic spirit impacting them, whether it's through a gossiper, whether it's through someone who bears, who says hateful words, whether it's through someone who's a theft, whether it's someone who's gay, whatever the list of things is, it doesn't matter. Um, the reality is their text also, we also know that as Christians, we can't be overcome because the Holy Spirit lives in us and greater is he that is in us and he that is in the world. So it's not really a fear that we need to have, but the influence, uh, there, look guys, who we hang around is extremely influential. If you hang around somebody who tells you every day that you're ugly, you're ugly, you're ugly, you're ugly, you're ugly, i.e. social media, you start to intake that. So what you do surround yourself with does impact you. So that might be some, one of the reasons why some Christians have felt that. Yes? That's true. If you know who you are, people around you can't influence you. You're right. But all your friends are straight. You're, you're, the, only, you're, you're the only gay one. And they're not influencing you. Can I say it again? Yes, got you. Yes, you're absolutely right, my friend. This is a good example, right? We can be around certain people and they can influence us or they may not influence us. Some people are just overly concerned that, that who they're around will influence us and some people are influenced by people around them. I mean, we see that all the time with teenagers. It's that, that's what these ladies are finding with this rapid onset gender dysphoria. I would not have lasted very long like that. All right, somebody was over here. I don't remember where it was. They may have gone. Is there a hand somewhere? Okay, hi. Oh, oh, ah, okay. How do we handle, how do I handle people in the Christian community who, who mishandle things like this? Is spanking on the table? Okay, fine. Um, so actually, in Jesus' infinite wisdom, knew that we would struggle with these kind of things. So let me let him help be um, of help to us. I didn't have time to get to this part in what I was saying but I'm gonna say it now. So those of you who stayed, you're gonna get it. Part of the issue that we have is that we in the Christian body, and the reason why we feel justified in looking down on people in the LGBT community is because we think we are better than them. And that has got to change. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. And it is not a typo, guys. It includes everybody here. And none of us are good enough to get to heaven on our own. None of us can stand before God and say, look, I'm such a good person, you gotta let me in. But we look at some of the LGBTQ community and say, look, I'm not like them, so I'm a better person. And that has given us our own permission to then look down on somebody, slander and insult somebody. So when you understand that, this is what I would say to, to the church, that thinks that they can respond in these ways to people in the LGBTQ community. Here we go. 
Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Listen to how this, this parable starts off. The very first verse in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. I'm pretty sure he just wanted to add in 2022 to this little section. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. Guys, when we need to get it through our heads, that the, when the Bible says that um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that that means we are no longer good. Okay? So there should be nobody within the Christian circles who are confident of their own righteousness and therefore look down on everybody else. So I'm going to start there. Luke 18, 9. I'm going to start there. And this is a parable Jesus then tells these people, which would be us, in my opinion. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Do you notice what he's done? God, I thank you that I'm not as bad as them. Let me tell you what they do, God. I'm not like them. I don't rob. I'm not an evil person. I'm not sexually immoral. I'm not a, th a thief like the tax collector. Look at me, God. And then he goes on to talk about the good things he does. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exhausted. Will be exalted. Sorry, not exhausted. Exalted. Yeah, that's you. So what would I say? What would I? What would I say to the church? I would bring them right back to that verse, and and I think we. I would. I would want us to be put back in our place, our rightful place, guys, where we recognize we aren't as great as we like to think we are. We are fallen people, and if it's not for the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God, we would be paying for the consequences of our evil actions. We don't get to point the finger at other people because that finger is also pointing at us. We are them. And what the church does is the church says, oh, I look at you and I say, you're really bad. But I look at me and I'm like, I don't do those things, therefore I'm better. And we compare ourselves to other people to determine whether or not we're a good person. The problem is we are comparing ourselves to the wrong group. It is not me versus another person, it's me versus God. And no matter how much I compare myself to him, I'm a screw up. And the minute you understand that, you understand me and everyone in the LGBTQ community and everybody in the prisons and everybody who's done X, Y, and Z, we are on the same boat in terms of a sinner. And the only thing that makes me different is that I have been made new. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and I'm a new creature. But it's because of him that I'm new. It's not because of me. And I think our issue in the church is we have gotten caught up in our own self-righteousness. And we think of ourselves as so high and mighty. And that's given us permission to snuff our noses and look at other people. And that is so wrong, guys. We have pushed people away from the church because of this. And we need to get it right. We need to get it right. So that is what I would say to people in the church. I think Jesus, thankfully, already answered that one for us. Okay, I'm going to come back to you. Let me just go to somebody else, and I'm going to come back to you. Anybody else have a question? 
to me. Talk about this. Thank you for asking this. So let me repeat, and then you tell me if I make sure I don't forget anything, okay? She's asking about Roe versus Wade. She's saying, how is it the government can come in and tell people what to do with their body, but then when the baby's born, they don't want to help out? Am I good? All right, good. All right, let's talk about this, because we're just doing controversial topics. So let's just keep going. Who, was the, who, who said that you could ask on whatever you wanted? Was that me? Um, let's talk about this, my friend. All right, number one, guys, I don't know how this got twisted, and maybe it's because of the overreaction of a lot of people, but abortion is not illegal in this country, okay? All that changed, as the Supreme Court said, is it's not a constitutional right, and they've put it down into the authority of the states. That's all they've done. So California, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, well, I can't say Pennsylvania, I don't know, Massachusetts, there is no way. Right, but that's a state decision. Okay, so, so these particular uh, states are going to have a, a legal abortion. California, Massachusetts, New York, all these guys are going to have legal abortion. That's not going to change. Other states are going to have, maybe you, you said Ohio, so right, so, okay, so maybe that. So other states are going to make their own rules, okay? So that's what the federal government done. Is that we're no longer going to um, govern this from a, a, a federal level, which I think is the right thing because actually we're just too big guys to have the federal government making some of these big massive decisions. It's better be left down in the, in the smaller community, as small as the state is, um, as a state. Regardless, so what they're doing, so it's not, it's not illegal, okay? So you, people can still get their abortions. Everybody calm down, you can still get your abortions. I don't think you should, but I'm just saying, okay? Um, second thing, why is it that we, uh, how is it right for the government to tell people what to do with their body when they don't do anything afterwards? The government does a lot, actually, post-birth. We have things like called WIC, which is women and children, and you can get formula and diapers and things like that for women and children. We have uh, food stamps for people that need that. Um, children are able to get free, free health care. So under, under a lot of state programs, children are able to get free uh, health care systems, whereas adults, you may or may not get it. But children are all typically covered under state um, medical health care systems, depending on the state. That's fine because those, those, are not, those are not the only two options. So she said a lot of people don't qualify for WIC and things, but those are not the only two options. You're, that's absolutely right, my friend. Um, and um, there's also uh, many Christian organizations that are uh, doing a lot of adoption work and also what's called crisis pregnancy work. So in other words, they have clinics that give free ultrasounds, give um, prenatal supplements, that give diapers and clothes, and walk women through pregnancy, and help with fostering slash adoption afterwards. So actually, the government does do stuff afterwards, and the church has done a lot of stuff for women afterwards. But here is the other thing, my friend. At the end of the day, if, if, if children were spontaneously formed in our body, I think people could have a stronger case for abortion. But the reality is, is that there is a particular action you have to do. We can get to the outsiders in a second. But there's particular, 95% or so of abortions, are, I mean, of, um, yeah, of abortions are actually have nothing to do with death of the mother and, and, and incest and rape and these kind of things. So they actually have to do with, Women choosing certain behaviors, okay? All right, so, so the government isn't trying to tell women what to do with their bodies because the women have already chosen what to do with their bodies. They're trying to outline and govern what to do with the outcome of your decision. Okay, does that make sense? So in other words, um, the issue is that government didn't say you cannot have sex anymore. 
If they had said that, now we have some kind of serious issues. They just said, when this is the outcome of your freely chosen decision, we are putting parameters. Once again, we got to have boundaries and parameters. We're going to put parameters and boundaries around the outcome. Now, and here's the other point I want to make, friends. Um, ladies, I'm sorry to tell you, but we don't have the right to do whatever we want with our own bodies. Okay? Newsflash, we never have. Okay? If I, walk, if I um, am an anorexic and I'm 80 pounds, do I really want somebody not to tell me what to do with my own body? Yeah, I may not want it, but are people going to? Yes. Why? Because in this moment, I can't see what's right. And I need somebody to tell me because I see myself in a different way. And I want to control myself and I want power over myself and I want to keep not eating. What about if I was suicidal and I was cutting? Would I dare say, oh, you can't tell me what to do with my own body? No one would say, people would get mad at a parent or a friend who didn't say something, who didn't intervene and say, you shouldn't be doing this with your own body. The reality is, my friend, is that there are times when women don't get it right. And we need somebody else to help us figure out what to do with our own bodies. And so I'm actually okay with people weighing in into some of the things that I do. Now, of course, I recognize I'm opening up to many other things they could weigh in as well. But there are times when we do need people to tell us what to do with our own bodies. And it isn't because they're trying to be mean or oppressive or force their religion on us. Sometimes it's because we aren't always seeing the right way to go. And so essentially, um, the government is doing things, the church is doing things, and we really need to look at this idea that a woman's right to choose to do whatever she wants. It is that right to choose to have sex that has led to this outcome that the government is now mandating. Guys, if we say that we, do, we will allow people to do whatever they want to do and have no consequences, then we can get rid of the entire prison system. Shut down all the prisons, shut down all the jails, let everybody out. We have an entire culture and society that is built up in saying, when you do these things and this is the outcome, the government gets involved. It's what we do with other things anyways. It's no different here. Thank you for that, my friend. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. How do I try to repair? They may have already slipped this boundary. In what way? A sexual. So let's say maybe I have a friend that I'm really good friends with, and maybe it's gone too far and maybe kind of start, started to turn romantic. Even have sex. Okay. So it's turned sexual, and how do I repair that relationship? Is this homosexual or heterosexual or either? Heterosexually. Good question, my friend. That's a really good question. You know, in a broken world, guys, in a world like this, there isn't always a perfect fix, perfect situation. Some people won't want you to be back in a relationship with them. This happens all the time, even with dating relationships. People just can't be friends afterwards. That's just not how they can do it. Other people can be friends. Um, and for some people, they just, it's just not something that can actually naturally go back together. And so I think that there's a sense in which we, the Bible says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So we do the best that we can. We do our part with the recognition that people don't always want that back. And some relationships will stay broken. And it is just the sad outcome of sin is not, not everything can be fixed. So I think we do our best to mend the relationship as much as it depends on us. But understanding that on this side of heaven, not every relationship will be broken. 
Not every sick person is going to be healed. Um, people are going to die, and things won't go the way that we want. So I'm sorry to give you that bad news. It's a good question, um, but sadly, some, the, the outcomes of, of what we do sometimes are just irreparable. But we try, as much as it depends on us. All right? That's a great question. Yes, talk to me, friend. So then the LGBT community, there is confusion, not just about their sexuality, but in general. So the confusion is coming into your work. So how, what do you mean by the confusion is coming into your work? Are you being asked to do things that you don't feel right about? Or you just, are these just colleagues that you're working with? Yeah, I'm not sure if I quite grab you only because I think I know you're trying to keep it general and protecting the specifics. But I think what you're essentially saying is like on the project, like people, you work on projects and you can't seem to really track with them because their views are so different than what you hold. They don't finish the project well, but that's because they are supporting the LGBTQ stuff. And you're saying that's bleeding into other areas of their life. Hmm. Well, I guess some of this might just be workplace dynamics. Because I don't think any of us live narrowly. Like if, we, if we're a Christian, it's going to bleed into, into other areas of our life. If we're um, LGBTQ, it's going to bleed into other areas, of our, other areas of our life. If we're Muslim, it's going to bleed into other areas of our life. Like I feel like there's a, there's a bit of normality that's with that. And I think some of this is just going to be how can I best function and work with and collaborate with people who think differently than me. And so some of it may be like, yeah, do I need to get to a new team? Do I need to talk with some people and try and work with them on a project? Is there a way that I can maybe implement a good solid end date? On June this, we want this done. On June 30th, we want this done. On July 15th, we want this done to maybe try and get end dates there. So that might be something that we have to do is just maybe try and nail things down a bit more specific so that collaboration can better happen. Because I think that's going to happen with a lot of people. That happens even in Christian organizations. This person doesn't like to get the thing done and is holding up everybody else. So I don't know if that quite answered it, but okay, okay. Yes, that's, and yes, try and think of it as regular things. Sometimes, guys, we get really tripped up on these LGBTQ stuff because we put it as a separate category. So there's us, there's LGBTQ people, and then there's all the other sinners. Because I'll say, well, how do I be friends with an LGBTQ person? I'm like, guys, the same way you're friends with everybody else. They're just a person. If you bring it all back in together, there is stop with the us and them. The only us we need to think about is that we have been saved and sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. Okay? But that's it. So let's recognize that these are still humans. We talk to them and, just, and engage them the same way we do other people. And that might be, yes, you're right. Some of that might be some of that challenge. Yes. What about Romans 10.9? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so he has a concern on this passage in Romans 10, 9. And that is the fact that, hey, you are, you are 
as as Lord. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. 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 Sure. Yes. 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 Okay. Okay, let's talk about this. So he's saying basically, how can you say that someone who's gay can go to heaven when the Bible's clear that liars and adulterers and homosexuals and all these people will not go to heaven? Um, and, um, and, and when you become a Christian, there is this, I, there's ideas of repentance and abstaining from certain things. Absolutely. I agree with all that, which is why I spent time explaining this idea that, that Christians see identity and actions is different. Number one, it's why it's also talked about. So in other words, somebody saying that they're gay is a description of their desires. It's not who they are. And that's why I talked about as well that the women who have married still have those desires. And so Christians see that as a description of desires. And just because you're gay doesn't mean that's an action. Okay? So it's a description of your desires. So they still have these desires for women even though they're married to men. And the third thing I would say is I believe that sanctification is a process. And that's the key thing for me is I, I remember reading the story once of this young woman who is um, who was trans and um, became a Christian. Spent many years people witnessing, witnessing to her. She becomes a Christian and people were angry because she would show up in church still as trans. And people were and so they were angry. And then there was this big old fuss and the people around her were like, guys, she's at least coming to church and confessing Jesus. Can we just stop there for a second? Look at where she was. Like, we're, we're right here. Yeah, she isn't all the way over yet, but sanctification is a process. She's becoming more and more like him bit by bit. For some people, they become a Christian, and they were an alcoholic before, and they have no issues with alcoholism when the moment they become a Christian. Other people struggle with sin throughout their life. The classic example of this is a guy named Brennan Manning. If you've ever heard of Brennan Manning, he wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel. He was a preacher, he was an author, he was a theologian, and he was also a drunk. He would come and he would speak in places and share the, share the message, share the gospel, and you go back to the hotel room and get plastered. He could not beat alcoholism, and he was daily having to crawl back to the feet of Jesus asking for mercy and forgiveness. And so I hear you. Do I think that you should say, hey, I'm a Christian, I believe these things, and I'm just going to live however I want? No, because it says, Lord, you're absolutely right. And the minute you say that he is Lord, you are now submitting yourself to him, which is what those women did. Here is my desires. I'm submitting them to him. And what, what these other pastors are talking about, when they say thieves and liars, guys, that's us. We may not be adulterers and, 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 and fornicators and, and, and be sexually promiscuous and be a part of the LGBTQ community, but it talks about many other things in there, which were also us. And so, so we have to walk this very fine line between we come to Jesus because we like Christ and then after we come to Jesus he makes us Christ-like and we have to toe that line very carefully 
And, and I think the expectation that someone will become a Christian and immediately stop swearing and change all their clothes and do all these things right away, I don't think that's realistic. And I think what God does, he works whatever, he works on them over the course of their life. Because honestly, I've been a Christian a long time, and he's still working on me. I still can't get it right. What's different with them? And he's working on me day by day to make him more and more like him. But I will never get there. I'm going to keep going, but I'll never be Christ. And so I think that's kind of, that's kind of the idea behind it. And so that's why I'm hesitant to say, well, just because somebody's gay, remember, to me, that's a description of their desires. Do I think that somebody should say, I profess Jesus Lord, and then be in active homosexual relationships and say, this is, this is okay? No, I think that's different. But I also recognize, are they wrestling with it? Or are they just like, yeah, I disbelieve the Bible on these passages. That's where actually we see the church go wrong, is when people say, I believe and I, I, I'm, I follow Jesus and I think he supports gay marriage. That's a very different twisting of the text versus like, I can't beat this yet. I just can't beat this addiction yet, but I'm going to keep coming to church. I'm going to keep trying to read this Bible, but I'm just not there yet. And to me, that's the difference. Is that a better explanation? Okay. Thank you for calling that out. And it, it is hard. It's hard to, to really kind of narrow these things down because I do think it's, it's, it's a bit of a fine line and it's a tough line. So I appreciate you making sure that I clarified that. Yes. So teenage boys. It's hard to to uh, raise teenage boys in a society that that um, supports pornography or allows it. Or allows it. Like it's part of being a boy. Yeah, like it's part of being a boy. What this is what you do. Yeah, what do I say to that? It's not really an action. Cause it's not really an action. Yeah, right. So we actually did a podcast on this one. This is this is Matt over here. If you see him walk around with it, he he works with me. If any of you did, any of you see that we're at the main stage last night and saw the video that played before I came out? That was him. He put that together. He's a very very good videographer. And. <laughs> And he, he likes to be behind the camera. I've just embarrassed him. But, you know, the video guys don't want to be seen. Um, but basically, yes. So we did a podcast you can watch or listen to on this idea of this whole topic of pornography. So um, this, the podcast is called Where We Begin, if you're interested in looking it up. Where We Begin. It's a podcast that we put out at Lighting Group. Um, and you can watch it on YouTube. You can listen to it on uh, Spotify or Apple, whatever, podcasts and all that jazzers. Where We Begin. All right. So, yes. Um, it's real, there's a great website. Hold on. Where's my, I keep forgetting where my phone is. I want you to, I, I would encourage you to check out, sometimes having, um, how do I say this without getting myself in trouble? I believe that, thank you. I believe that non-Christians can say good things even though they're not Christians. Did I tick anybody off yet? Okay. Um, and there's a really good website um, that addresses some of these things. Oh, man. Where is it? Uh, it's not fight the new drug, but fight the new drug is a good one as well. Where did I put it? That's a bummer. Oh, it is a non, it's a, he's a black guy. He's got dreads. That doesn't help you at all. It's, yeah, if you Google black guy with dreads, you're probably not going to get a pornography site. And if you do get a pornography site, it's not going to be the right one you want. So let's not Google that. All right. But it's really interesting because they talk about um, the long-term effects, or the, the effects of pornography. And some of the things they tell you is to have an accountability person and these kind of things. My point is the culture, 
does somewhat say that it's right, but other parts of the culture say it's wrong because they say it's a form of human trafficking. A lot of these women are not choosing to be on these screens, um, but children are not choosing to be on these screens, but they are being forced to be in this. So there are people who say that this, thing, these, this is really wrong. Um, people who say that it's just a part of, of childhood and manhood, right. And it's like, um, well, guys, before the internet and before Playboy, it wasn't a part of childhood, so that doesn't make any sense because they didn't have the access. Now, they went places, but in terms of, you know, being able to see these visual kind of things, this was a, this is coming later on. Pornography was always a thing where you could go places to do those behaviors. But the idea that Ed, this is what boys did to be boys was not necessarily a concept before the modern era where we make it so easy can come into your bedroom or on your phone. That's changed things. And so I would say, yeah, I think our culture has, to some extent, said this is normal, but many people in our culture recognize the harm of this stuff. It's recognized that it's, been, it's really hard for men to be able to find later sexual pleasure because of it, because of the rewiring that's done. So they need more and more and more stimulation. And so, so some of these websites will tell you that actually this stuff is, is harmful and is actually not okay. So I would say some people are saying that, but I would listen to people that are, that are pointing out the really harmful things, and I would look them up. Man, I cannot believe I, can, I don't have this. Will you listen to, listen to, I talk about it on the podcast. Listen to the podcast, guys. I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name of this guy. Ugh, but he goes through a lot of the different harms that um, it causes. Bummer. But it, another thing is it talks about the hardwiring of the brain, that pornography actually hardwires your brain and changes things up, which is crazy. So all that to say, there's many people within society that are actually saying, no, this is harmful. Read some of the stuff that they say because I cannot find my notes for you today. Sorry. No, I know. I totally know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that when I started learning about the hardwiring and I started learning about how it actually does have changes and effects on the body, then it was like, this is not just looking at pictures. Like, this is a whole other thing. And keep in mind, guys, generally, now I'm, I'm a criminal justice major, so sorry, I always think of things in terms of crime scenes and criminals and that kind of stuff. But generally, whenever somebody wants it, I'm going to use terms loosely because of the variety of age groups we have here. So I'll just say, for certain people that do the same crime over and over again, they, there tends to be a pattern where they, they dehumanize the people that they hurt, okay? So in other words, when you um, dehumanize somebody, it's easy for you to abuse somebody. And you're going to see some of this in porn. You see that in the criminal justice system, and you're going to see some of that with this, where these are not humans. And so therefore, they leave it, and women become, or men, become objects. They bring that devaluing over into other aspects, so I think some of these things are going to be helpful to communicate because these are the other aspects a lot of people don't know when it comes to these topics. Yeah. Talk to me. In the Catholic traditions. Can you say, I missed that. Some, sex is done with two purposes. Unity building, procreation. But many Christian families use birth control. Oh, you're just going to get me in trouble today. <laughs> yes. So they use birth control to regulate. Yes. Right. But they're monogamous. So, Alicia, what do you have to say about that? Is it, it is a, so basically, is it a sin to use birth control? That's great. I should have ended Q&A a, sec, a second ago. 
I'm totally teasing you. Right, we got to burn our feet. That should have been the sign. End it now, Alicia. No, I'm totally joking with you, my friend. I told you you can ask whatever you want. That's fine. It's not the first time I've gotten this question. I will tell you this. The Christian church is not in unity on this. Okay, there's certain issues that, we're, that they're just not. They're not in unity on whether or not women should preach. They're not in unity on whether or not we should infant baptize or adult baptize, blah, blah, blah. We're just not in unity on this. And so what I've, I've seen some people say, well, we don't, we don't uh, use um, – uh, any chemical kind of thing, so any kind of biological, so pills and things like that, but they'll use other forms. So they've kind of, it seems to me what Christians have done is say, this is what I feel like the Lord is telling me is okay for us. And I'm kind of okay to leave it with what they, what they want to do and say people can decide as to what works in themselves. But I do agree that, um, that we do need to keep in mind um, that some of these things just aren't even healthy for our bodies in terms of certain things that we, that we can do. It doesn't mean all of it's bad. I'm just saying certain things I just think um, you need to be really careful for, and I'm just using really cautious words here. So, um, yeah, so I would just say I leave it up to the individual person, what they decide. Because here's the thing. I can give you one answer. You're going to talk to somebody else, and they're going to give you another answer, and you're, you're going to be no less closer to the answer for you. Um, and so because there's such breakdowns and divisions with this particular topic, it's going to be hard for me to gear you into one particular direction because somebody else will just gear you back out the other way. Yes, follow up. So if it's okay to naturally family plan. Do you want me to go? Yes. Okay, that's a great, it's a great question. So she's essentially saying, if natural family planning, um, how does natural family planning compare with two women? Natural family planning, you said is, is, say it again, is, if you're natural family planning, you're not intending to reproduce. Right. I see. So, okay, great. So, okay. So, in other words, if, if natural family planning you do with the intent to not reproduce, and then I'll make this final question because i got to let these guys go, but you can come up to me and talk to me. Um, if natural family planning is, is intended for, uh, to make sure people don't reproduce, then how is, that, how is that okay? But when two women get together, it's not okay when they can't reproduce. That's a great question, okay? The, the, what makes um, same-sex relationships wrong within an atheistic worldview or a naturalism worldview is that they can't reproduce. That's the only thing that makes it wrong in that worldview. What makes it wrong within Christianity is that God doesn't want you with, uh, with a, someone of the same sex sexually anyways, whether you can reproduce or not. Okay? So that's going to be the difference. Christianity wouldn't hold the view that what makes uh, a, a same-sex marriage wrong is that they can't reproduce. What makes a same-sex relationship wrong is that are we are physically designed by our creator to be opposite sex romantic lovers you could say okay so all this a natural family planning though does something a little bit different it's also about letting you know when you can have children because there's only certain days that you can actually many people don't know this women can't get pregnant every time which is part of the some of the some of the things I've been reading on Twitter when they're like, oh, women can get pregnant every day. And I'm like, oh, not biologically. No, you can't. No, you can't. Okay. So part of natural family planning is also then you know when you can get pregnant. And that tiny window, it's actually much smaller than people realize. Somewhere between like five days or so, give or take, maybe seven. And maybe, what'd you say? 72 hours. I've never heard it that tiny. 
So that's even smarter than I've always heard. I've always heard it about five days. Okay? So she's, she's gotten it down to three, which is very interesting. So my point is, you actually don't get pregnant as often as the days that women can get pregnant is actually not as common as we think. So natural family planning is also what help people to know when those fertile times are so they can avoid, like you were saying, or actually have children. So that's, that would be my short answer to you, my friend, is it's not about what makes same-sex relationships wrong is that they can't procreate, is that they aren't supposed to be engaging in that behavior same, with the same, somebody of the same sex in the first place, okay? Does that help you? Okay, thank you guys. You can come up and talk to me. I gotta let these kind people go. Give them a round of applause because they've waited all this time for us. <laughs>